We all want to feel like we belong, but sometimes it's challenging to find connection in our living spaces, neighborhoods, communities, and relationships. On Home Where You Belong, we're here to change that. Hear stories of people from different backgrounds and from different places and how they've been able to feel more at home to help give you a renewed sense of connection, belonging, and optimism. Welcome to Home Where You Belong with your host, Chip Alford. Hey, Home Where You Belong listeners. I have a great deal to share with you. Audible is now offering a 30-day free trial that allows you to explore its incredible selection of audiobooks and podcasts across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to memoirs, mysteries, and thrillers. The Audible app makes it easy to listen anytime, anywhere. For details, visit audibletrial.com belong. That's audibletrial.com belong. Now, on with today's show. Throughout the book, there are a number of techniques that are connected with the idea that the more expansive, open our space around us feels, the more open to new ideas, open to doing things in a different way our brains become. Creativity isn't all in your head. Sometimes it depends on your surroundings, especially when you're at home. No one understands that better than architect, author, and educator Donald Ratner. Using scientific research gathered over 20 years, Donald penned the best-selling book, My Creative Space, How to Design Your Home to Stimulate Ideas and Spark Innovation. The award-winning publication covers everything from which colors lead to peak creative performance to optimal lighting and noise levels needed to achieve breakthrough insights. Curious about why you should never place your desk facing a wall or how furnishings influence mindset? My Creative Space has the answers. An educator and practitioner as well as author, Donald holds a bachelor's degree from Columbia and a master of architecture degree from Princeton. He's taught at the University of Illinois, New York Academy of Art, New York University, and Parsons School of Design. His work has been featured on CNN and in publications like the New York Times, Architectural Digest, and Town and Country. Donald, welcome to Home Where You Belong. I appreciate you taking some time out today to join us on the podcast. Hi, Chip. Uh, Thank you so much for inviting me. Looking forward to our conversation. I think all of us would would want to say that we want to be more creative, right? But you believe most of us are really underutilizing a creative asset that we have in our possession. Um, that's something that really can make a difference in how our mind works for the better. Can you tell us about what is that asset and why aren't people using it more effectively? Yes. Um, so that asset, as you, you folks might um, anticipate by the <laughs> theme of the show, is your home, uh, your physical space where you live and enjoy family and friends and whatever it is that uh, you do when you're at home. And, you know, we're going to go into the very specifics as to why home is such a what I call catalyst of creativity, mm-hmm. a kind of a creativity booster. And there's all sorts of ways you can manipulate your home to achieve that end. But the simple reason why most folks aren't aware of it is that um, it's not talked about a lot. Uh, a lot of the material that I pulled together for the book is found in rather obscure, at least to us non-scientists, scientific journals, kind of out-of-the-way places um, where people have looked into this interesting connection between home and creativity and have written papers and done studies and all that kind of stuff. But it's not the kind of thing you hear about much, even in the general press once in a while. So my goal in writing my creative space was to make people more aware of this asset that we're all kind of sitting in day after day uh, and how best to turn it into this creativity engine. When you mentioned creativity, and obviously that's the in the title of your book, maybe before we get into the the, the details or practical suggestions, um, how do you define creativity? And why do you think we should care about being more creative at home in particular? 
Well, creativity, of course, is a kind of a, a slippery concept, I think, for a lot of folks. I think you walked up to the man or woman on the street and said, uh, excuse me, sir, madam, are you creative? They would say, oh, me? No, I can't draw. I can't <laughs> paint. I can't sing or whatever it is, as if creativity was just about the arts or just about drawing and painting the things we sort of automatically assume are, are creative. In fact, over the last oh, 50, 60 years now, creativity has become a real focus uh, amongst a certain uh, circle of academics and people who literally study and write and teach about what creativity is. And out of that has come what is called the consensus definition, uh, meaning a definition that most experts in creativity utilize when someone says, what is creativity? Okay. And that definition is that creativity is the development of novel and useful ideas for products, services, and systems, end quote. Um, yeah, a little bit wonkish, as you might expect <laughs> from academia, but when you get into it, it kind of tells us a lot. First of all, there are two key words in that definition, novel and useful. So for something to be creative, it has to be, quote, novel, which we all understand, new, original, unprecedented, unexpected, surprising, all those kind of good good terms. Useful, right. uh, yes, in a practical utilitarian sense, but I think in a way going beyond pure practicality in the sense of something that has value to someone. So for example, a work of art, you know, a painting on your wall doesn't have, strictly speaking, a utilitarian function, and yet we, of course, consider it creative. We also consider it to have value to us emotionally, intellectually, mm. sometimes, if you're lucky, financially. <laughs> so I want to, you know, stress that this is a kind of broader sense of usefulness. Also, by the way, just speaking of artwork, you'll notice in this definition I just gave that there is no reference specifically to the arts, because the idea of creativity now has been expanded beyond just that particular area of human activity to encompass anything, any discipline, any activity for which novel and useful ideas can be developed. So we could be talking about science, we could be talking about marketing, we could be talking about, in your field, communication, anything, both, quote, big and small. So, right, we have little creativity, right, which, where we, you know, fix that link, uh, leak under our sink with uh, bubble gum and picture wire because that's all we had in our hand. That's little sort of what's called mini creativity, up to the greatest ideas, of course, that humanity can give and everything in between, which is where most of us are operating. So it's important to understand that we're no longer just talking about the fine arts or personal creativity of that sort. We could be talking the full spectrum of novel and useful ideas. That's a good, good clarification. Yeah, I, I guess I do tend to think of creativity partly because I worked in, I guess you could say the arts or in communications, but, you know, creativity can happen anywhere in any, in any discipline. In your, in the title of your book, uh, in addition to creativity, the subtitle mentions innovation. Do you um, have a distinction between the two or how would you define the difference between creativity and innovation? Yes. Yeah, so, um, Good question. Uh, there is a difference, which is why uh, we have two different words, uh, although people <laughs> sort of tend to sometimes use them interchangeably. They're not exactly the same thing. Uh, for innovation, however, there isn't quite the same call, call it consensus definition. There, 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 there are a number of variants really on a theme, but what they boil down to and what I think I give in the book is that innovation is the introduction of seminal ideas into the marketplace. So the key word there is seminal. And that is truly groundbreaking, unprecedented, never seen before kind of stuff, um, which is a little different from creativity because you could have things that are very creative. When I designed a building, I would like to consider it creativity, but it's not <laughs> sure. necessarily innovative in the sense that I'm introducing something out there into the world, which is then adopted widespread and changes in some facet the, the practice of architecture. Um, also different is that innovation, generally speaking, involves multiple people, mm -hmm. very often teams, if you're talking in a business environment, groups of people, um, whereas creativity tends to be more focused on the individual. Yes, you can have brainstorming sessions where you might have a few more uh, few people more than just the individual, but it tends to be more individualistic. Innovation requires a larger mechanism to bring these ideas into the marketplace okay. um, uh, and become truly innovation. Okay. 
another part of your your subtitle points out that these are 48 science-based techniques that you include in in the book um, and we're going to get into those uh, some of those shortly why is turning to science the best strategy for shaping our homes to encourage creativity and innovation um, well, I would say one of the best um, because okay. there's this sort of non-scientific uh, approaches, for example, just, you know, trial and error. You try something, it works, it doesn't work. It's not exactly a scientific method, but, you know, a lot of times we can come up with creative ideas that way, too. Sure. But I think science is important because, first of all, it introduces us to things that, again, most of us would be unaware of. The human mind operates in some mysterious ways that wouldn't be self-evident to us unless science could kind of unravel the puzzle as to why do we react to our environment the ways that we do, as we'll talk about shortly. So that's one aspect that science is very good for. The other is that obviously a little bit, it takes it out of a guessing game. Uh, it also can help uh, dispel certain myths um, about okay. just, for example, we've talked about, oh, I'm not creative. Well, according to science, <laughs> We all have the raw materials, we all have the wiring, we're all bioengineered, whatever you want to call it, to be creative, whether we then are encouraged in that or develop that or are given means of bringing it out. That's a whole different question. But we are all at birth pretty much wired to be creative because that's how we evolved in nature. We can get into all that. So science has a lot to offer us. And I wanted to pull that out of the academy, so to speak, the scientific world and into um, a format that people from all walks of life, you don't have to be an architect, you don't have to be a scientist, can draw from this book and apply it to developing their own home as a kind of creative incubator. Yeah, absolutely. I really like the the practical. I mean, you give the theory and you give the science behind it, but then you make it practical with suggestions of maybe how to achieve some of these um ideas or recommendations that you include. You mentioned earlier that, you know, one reason that we that we probably haven't taken advantage of our homes as the creative asset that it can be is that it hasn't been talked to a lot about, at least not in academia or, or even general public that much. Why and when did scientists get interest in creativity? You had a couple examples, actually several examples in the book of what scientists had learned in this space. Can you can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So I kind of, uh, in my various, you know, when I give public talks and to some degree in the book, I sort of highlight a few milestones. In the 1960s, there starts to develop an interest in what's called environmental psychology, which is this field that, just what it sounds like, studies the psychological effect that our environment has on us. And we start to see things happening, especially in the world of creativity, where that suggested connection is really coming to the fore. For example, a very famous example is Jonas Salk, who developed the uh, polio vaccine, of course. Right. Uh, what folks generally don't know is that Salk started this, you know, obviously long, drawn-out effort. It took years for him to do this. It didn't just come, come out one day. As a young researcher, I think he was at the University of Pittsburgh, maybe it was, and being a junior faculty, I think this was his first job, um, you know, they gave him a, a basement office, you know, the crappiest space in the whole <laughs> university for him to do <laughs> to do his work. So he's down there in the dank basement. He's, you know, toiling away. He's doing his things and years are going by and he knows what he's trying to achieve, but he's, he's sure. very frustrated in, in, in doing so. And he gets the sense, you know what, I got to go like clear my head, as we would say today. So he takes a sabbatical or a vacation for a month or so. And he travels to a little hill town in uh, Italy called Assisi. It's this wonderful, you know, classic, beautiful Italian mountaintop town with beautiful walkable streets and this great architecture. And you're close to the sky and the weather's beautiful. The landscape is gorgeous. But what, what really, you know, happens to him is that he becomes profoundly affected by this incredibly beautiful environment, especially having come from a basement in Pittsburgh, who wouldn't be. That's uh, a definite, the, definite step up. <laughs> but to the point where he achieves this kind of breakthrough, right? He changes his mindset. He suddenly realizes, you know what? I, I see where I've been kind of going down the wrong path. 
he rushes back or goes back to his basement office and, you know, within a certain period of time comes up with this vaccine that, of course, saved many lives and, and repaired um, many um, instances of handicapping. So this is a classic example where someone feels their environment changing their creative mindset. And in fact, Salk himself credited this experience with, having, with him being able to create the vaccine to the point where he then when he's become famous and, you know, Jonas Salk, he establishes the Salk Institute in La Jolla, California. And folks, if you can actually go and visit it, it's this amazing hilltop uh, site overlooking the ocean where he commissions a famous architect of the time named Louis Kahn to design a campus that would become the Institute with the express purpose of designing it so that it would foster creative ideas and you see Khan putting into uh, play some of these ideas. For example, he designed the spaces where the folks who were there as fellows worked to be column free, right? So they're clear spans. He had to use these gigantic uh, trusses to span this very broad distance. And what he was trying to do is to get people to interact as much as possible, mm. because a lot of times creativity comes from us bumping into people in the hallway or the wherever and saying, you know, I've been working on this idea. Did you think, oh, let me show you what I'm doing. So Co collaboration. Yeah, exactly. So there's this very conscious, deliberate effort to create a creative space. And from there, we start to see scientists turning towards this idea that environment has a huge impact to us. But it's really not until, so call it the, around two that creativity specifically becomes a target of investigation. And now we have whole departments in universities devoted to exploring through experimentation, through research, what kind of stimuli in our environment literally can be shown to boost creative idea generation. And that's what we're enjoying the fruits of now 20 plus years later. That's awesome. Let's get into those, some of the creativity tactics that you include um, in the book. There's 48 science-based, what you call creativity tactics. I wish we had time to go through all of them. We don't, <laughs> but uh, there were several that picked my curiosity that I'd like to ask you about. The very first one you talk about in the book, um, and you just mentioned this, is establishing a consistent place at home for pursuing your creative interest. Why is it important to have that, you know, kind of carved out space for that purpose? And can you give us a, some examples of, of how you might be able to do that? Well, sure. I mean, um, you know, there is, first of all, just a kind of practical aspect to it, which is that you can then design this space by pulling in as many of these techniques, these 48 techniques as possible to optimize creativity. You don't have to do all 48. Uh, it's been shown <laughs> again and again that even one single stimulus um, that has been based on creativity uh, generation can do the trick and actually change your idea flow. Um, but there's a, a particular principle at work here, which is, you know, this one actually does go back in time a little bit, which is that classic Pavlovian association. Remember Pavlov and his yeah. dogs, right? What does he do? <laughs> he rings a bell every single time he feeds his dogs in his laboratory. And he keeps doing this to the point where all he has to do is ring that bell and the dogs come running and start salivating because they have associated in their brains what's called their neural pathways, the idea that bell equals food. And that's good. And, they, and their glands and their biology starts to react to that without with just the stimulus. Sure. So the idea here is that when you associate a space specifically with your creative activity, just by entering that space again and again and again, your brain shifts into a creative mindset almost automatically. And that's why having this dedicated space, and that could be obviously a study, a desk, a workspace, or if you're, you, you express your creativity through cooking, your kitchen obviously mm. is a great creative space. You could you know, fit out your garage. You could fit out a space up in the in the uh, under the roof uh, space, whatever it is to keep coming back there again and again means you're going to trigger that creative mindset through pure association. Hmm, interesting, interesting. Another tactic that you talk about is the the colors that you use in the space um, that you create. My favorite color is blue. So I'd like to think maybe that's why I'm so creative after reading your book. <laughs> but seriously, um, you talk about the benefits of consistent exposure to the color blue. Why is that important? And tell, tell us about that. 
Yeah, interesting. Um, so in fact, through experimentation, they have found there are actually two colors. I talk okay. about the other one later in the book. There are two colors that stimulate creativity when people are exposed to it. One is blue, as you say, the other is green. So okay. what is it about these two colors that sort of immediately come to mind? Well, I would suggest their close association with nature, right? And in mm. particular, the positive aspects of nature. So when we talk about blue skies and blue waters as a kind of a positive metaphor or fact, uh, greenery obviously uh, represents growth, food uh, sources, sustainability, being able to survive. All of these connections we have ingrained in our psychology um, by virtue of something called evolution, right? So mm -hmm. we all, the human species certainly, evolved in a purely natural environment, right? We're going back now millions of years. So these signals in our environment, blue sky, blue waters, greenery means this is a positive environment. We can survive here. And the fact that we spend, oh, about 99.999% of our time on Earth through evolution to the present in a state of nature rather than indoors, as we do now, means that biology has been kind of wired to respond positively to natural inputs, one of which is, of course, color. So a very close connection we have found is that when you're in generally in a positive state of mind, you are more creative, right? Sure. And generally, I think most people would know this kind of from experience, because when you're angry or stressed <laughs> out or freaked out, it's just not a time where you're coming up with great ideas. You Absolutely. tend to do so when you're in a positive framework. So that's definitely one explanation. The other one with blue specifically is that blue is what's called a recessive color. And by the way, blue is the most universally liked color on earth. And that crosses cultural divides. That's so that's getting at this idea that this is something that's just intrinsically human, right? There are cultural mm -hmm. influences on our color appreciation, but in this case, it just spans the globe. Uh, so you're in good company. Um, <laughs> but blue is interesting because it has another effect on us, which is optical, right? It's what's called a recessive color. So certain colors, when you look at a wall or so that are painted a certain color, optically, it's kind of an optical illusion, obviously, they feel like they're moving away from you versus certain colors which are called, which are advancing towards you, warmer colors, for example, red. If you painted a wall red, it would optically look like it was kind of uh, encroaching on you or approaching Coming at you. Coming at you, right. yeah. So a space where, let's say, all the walls are painted blue will feel larger than the same exact space painted with, say, red colors, which will feel slightly like they're coming in at you. So what does this all have to do with creativity? Well, throughout the book, there are a number of techniques that are connected with the idea that the more expansive, open our space around us feels, the more, let's think about how we use language, open to new ideas, open to doing things in a different way our brains become. So blue as a space that suggests, or as a color that suggests broader space tends to open up those creative spigots in a way that's a red, and this goes back to kind of stress, right? We tend to get kind of anxious when we see red blood and, you know, mm. red stuff, danger, danger, tends to make us a little more stressful and therefore less creative. Really interesting. We You, you mentioned, you know, one way to take advantage of that color blue would be to paint your walls that color. But there's other, what are other ways that you could maybe bring blue into your environment or into your creative space? I think I saw even there are recommendations about using blue as your your background color on your computer or exactly, can you have exactly. any other ideas for that? Well, yes. And I, you know, I use wall color as sort of the kind of, you know, touch point when we talk sure. about color because it, it's obviously the largest sur single surface area, but it's not requisite or it's not required that you do it. Uh, you incorporate blue that way. For example, you could flip it around and use a neutral, what's called a neutral color, whites, grays, blacks, I guess, if you wanted to, as your wall color and against which you could have anything from artwork, right? Artwork that has mm. blue in it or upholstery or drapery or wall coverings that use blue as a pattern. You don't have to make the entire space um, blue per se, although you can. And there are even examples uh the literally false floor ceilings furniture everything <laughs> blue that's maybe going a little that, that may be a little too much yeah. yeah it's a little too much blue 
Um, and as you mentioned, like computer backgrounds, it's the stimuli. But what you want to make sure is that it's kind of the dominant uh, mm -hmm. color hue and that those background colors, whites and grays and so forth, have no known effect on our mindset that they're kind of the foil uh, for which you can kind of use blue as a primary color. I guess it could also relate to another tactic that you you mentioned, which is... Um take in a view. I mean, if you had, if you are near a window, or there's a window in your space and you can look at the blue sky, hopefully it's a blue sky day, yes. <laughs> but um, that could be a way to bring it in. But, but why is a, why is having a view helpful for creativity? Well, because ultimately, I mean, as much as you can do in an interior space to make it feel more expansive, and I don't want folks to feel like they need a, you know, 500 square foot study to, to make it feel expansive, just color sure. alone can do it. Um, but obviously, the moment you can open up a wall and look to the outside, your sense of distance just amplifies many times over. It's just hard to beat that um, sense of expansiveness. Of course, it's doing other things as well. First of all, brings in natural light, which has also been connected. Remember, we're going back to the idea of biology and evolution and being in nature. Natural light actually can stimulate creativity. If you are fortunate, as I am, to live in a semi-rural, you know, very nicely landscaped area, then you're seeing nature on the outside, of course, as well. So all of these, uh, you know, factors can come into play. And the idea is, of course the more you can engineer your space to compound these techniques to utilize more than one, the more you're tending to be um, more capable in your creative uh, activities. Sure. Well, you, you talked a lot about expansiveness. Um, what about ceiling height? Is that Does that matter? Does that make an impact? Yeah, that's one of my favorite ones. Um, <laughs> Just because it's so like, wow, really? Um, and and the experimentation was very straightforward. So uh, I think I give a picture of it in the book, but you have this, uh, just imagine you're in a lab, you're in an academic setting. Remember, we're dealing with scientists here. You're in some lab building and they have this little experiment space, which just has a very simple built-in desk surface. It doesn't even look like a terribly big room from what I can tell, but there's a picture of a laptop sitting on this desk space. And so what they would do is to bring in their students and students are almost always the subjects in these experiments because right. hey, they're free and they're all over the place you're in a <laughs> university so let's bring them in and they give the you know the the undergrads or whatever they are grad students they give them a series of exercises and those exercises are actually designed to measure creative performance so they have certain types of questions that they answer that they can actually now measure how creative was the uh, student's response to this question or problem all right so they bring a whole you know hundred, a couple of hundred students into this space. They have their laptop, they're doing their creativity assessment test. They go out, they bring in the next one. And this room has an as, what's called an as built, meaning existing ceiling height of 10 feet, let's say. Okay. okay. So great. They got all these, you know, the, all this data, this mountain of data <laughs> for the same problem, the same question, pretty much the students are all kind of similar backgrounds. So there's no deviation in, in answers because of the nature of your pool, your data pool. But then the scientists bring in, you know, the janitorial crew or the, whatever, the construction crew, and they put in a drop ceiling, a false ceiling, right? Like you might have in an office space, um, those acoustic tile ceilings, at eight feet above mm -hmm. the floor. Everything else about the room is exactly the same. Just the ceiling has come down to eight feet. They bring in a fresh group of students, give them exactly the same questions, the same puzzles, the same problems to solve creatively. And guess what? They score less well on the test. So there you have in like black and white, 10 foot ceiling, eight foot ceiling, because here's the deal. Space is not just forward and back, left and right. It's also vertical. It's three dimensional. So the higher ceilings seem to open up those students' mind, had that kind of expansive effect we talked about with color, only three dimensionally, purely in the vertical direction. Now, that said, of course, it's tough for people to say, oh, well, then I'm going to remodel my house so I can have a 10-foot <laughs> high study or workspace or whatever it is. There, That's okay. If you don't have that to begin with, there actually are some 
kind of uh, eye fooling techniques you can do to amplify the vertical dimension. For example, you could paint stripes on your wall or use wallpaper with vertical stripes because that vertical kind of direction, your eye is going to constantly be moving in an up and down direction versus, say, a chair rail right at three feet or two and a half feet, which tends to emphasize the horizontal dimension. So there are things you can do to fool the eye because here's the deal when we're talking about the psychology of creative space. It's what matters ultimately is what your brain is thinking or responding to rather than literally what's there. And we can fool the brain into thinking certain things through optical illusions, uh, making it operate in a certain way versus, oh, I don't have 10 foot ceilings. I can never uh, uh, exploit this technique. And you give a lot of creative ideas and solutions like that, mm -hmm. not, ju not just for ceiling height, but for other other techniques as well. That's Thank that's you. really helpful. I tend to associate creativity with the future, um, creating something for, you know, for tomorrow or, you know, the year ahead. But one of your suggested tactics is think back or surround yourself with mementos or experiences, events, places, people in your life that hold some kind of historical interest for you. How does thinking about the past lead to creativity or innovation? Yeah, another interesting um, technique. Again, you know, this is where one would not have ever imagined it unless someone came to you and said, you know what, if you do this, this is what's <laughs> happening. And we have experimental data uh, to, to demonstrate this. And again, in this case, sort of similar as with the eight foot, 10 foot ceiling, they had one group of students taking their creativity assessment tests um, after being asked to think about distant events in their own lives, to think back into their past. And then they gave, again, the same test to a second group who just came in and were given the test without having to do that kind of retro aggressive thinking. And they scored less well in the test. It's like, really? Wow. <laughs> so what the idea here is that there's something in play called psychological distancing, right? Because when you think back into the deep past, what happens in your kind of mindset? Uh, I would describe it as you become a little bit um, less focused, less detailed, less aware of detail, less aware of the finer points of, say, an event that happened 10 years ago, because, you know, just over time, you, sure, you kind yeah. of start to look at it uh, and don't remember some of these details. Whereas nearer in time, you are very focused. You can kind of say everything that just happened in the last five minutes or where you were in the last five minutes. So again, just thinking about the past tends to move our brains into what's called the creative mindset, which by nature tends to look at things more in a big picture way, more in a kind of abstract way versus that narrow focus detail that we associated with what's called analytical thinking. So if we think of creativity and analytical thinking as sort of opposites, it's that classic right brain, left brain thing. So with our left brain, we're thinking more analytically when we're more focused, when we're more detail oriented, when we're in our kind of creative mindset, we don't want to talk, we don't want to think about like, what is the details of my new widget that I'm inventing that I haven't even like gotten past square one. You don't start with the <laughs> details. You start with the big idea. You start with the biggest picture you can to entertain all the possibilities. And over time, through series of steps, you start to narrow down the idea, how you're going to implement the idea, how you're going to design this object or create this object to the point where you have all the details. So it's a kind of a funneling effect. That's why uh, uh, you want to step back and think you know, in broad brush terms, which is what thinking into the distance past gets your brain oriented to versus detail focus, what happened in the last five minutes, mm. which is that analytical left side. So uh, how can you make that uh, happen or visible within your home? I'm I'm looking at you now. We're, we're conducting this interview via Zoom, and I see a lot of picture of what I assume is your children or family members, you know, maybe at different ages or different times in their lives. Is, is that an example or, or what yeah, are other ways absolutely. we can bring it? Okay. So yes, decorating or adorning or furnishing out your space with objects, images that suggest the distant past, certainly on a personal nature, of course, family memorabilia when your kids were young or your relatives were young. Um, but you can go even beyond that, even just antique furniture or old artwork of, you know, a couple of hundred years old or something, something that suggests the distant past as a kind of stimulus to put you into that distancing thought. By the way, I should mention 
that strictly speaking, yes, you talked about creativity as kind of harbinger of the future. This has been shown, this psychological distancing effect, to be in operation if you can forward think far into the future, like sci-fi futuristic uh, thinking. So you can go in either direction as long okay. as there's this sense of you know time, great uh, amounts it's of time of having passed between expansion. your present, exactly, and opening up that kind of mindset to a more abstract, big picture, broad brush, less detailed, less focused, less analytical sensibility. Mm -hmm. Another suggested tactic in your book is kind of summed up by the phrase face your space. Can you talk a little bit about that? I'm, I'm assuming that's one reason why we shouldn't place our desk facing a wall, for example. Well, yes. I mean, generally speaking, if you have a choice, if you have a space that could be furnished with either desk facing a wall or facing into the room, you generally want to have the uh, desk facing into the room when you have a choice. And the reason for this uh, brings into uh, play something called prospect refuge theory. This is a psychological <laughs> theory, which goes way back again into our antediluvian past, into our evolutionary stage. So the idea behind this is that we have become bioengineered um, through evolution to seek out call vantage points or places in space that give us maximum prospect, which we'll call view. So if you can imagine standing at the edge of a field in the African savanna and you have pretty much an 180 degree sweep of the head, you can see everything from your left to your right. At the same time, giving you a certain amount of protection, refuge, from things you can't see, which is, of course, everything behind you, things that are mm. outside your cone of vision, which are very close to 180 degrees, and over your head. And what is the idea behind that? Well, if you can position yourself that way, you are most likely to survive in a hostile <laughs> environment because those nasty animals that want to eat you are going to sneak up to you behind <laughs> you versus, oh, I see he's coming across the field. I better get the heck out of here. And so through evolution, those who could kind of, you know, balance this need for prospect and refuge, they continued to survive. Whereas the ones who didn't get that memo, they were eaten alive or, you know, killed by hostile tribespeople. And so they died off. And that part of their brain, of our brains, has kind of gone with them. So the idea is that, again, because we evolution moves so gosh darn slowly, that legacy is still with us today. And there are, in fact, people who if they're just standing in a room, say at a cocktail party or something, and they have their back to the door, they get extremely anxious. They don't know why, but they just go, oh, I'm freaking out here. They're actually more sensitive to us than, than say you and me, but nonetheless, it is operating subconsciously in our heads. So the idea of facing your space means behind you, you've got that wall, that sense of protection. You know, you're kind of snug up to the bookcase or the wall behind you, and you can see who is ever entering the room. Uh, you've got the sense of spaciousness in front of you, as opposed to I'm sitting in front of a wall two feet away. There's that <laughs> lack of expansiveness. Now, having said all of that, you know, there are cases. I lived in New York City apartments for many years. Space is a premium. There is sure. a lot of it there. Uh, you may be compelled to put your desk against the wall, say, if you're in a long, narrow space and you just have enough room behind you to circulate past it. You don't really have a lot of choice. There are things you can do to mitigate that, to overcome that. For example, there's that color blue. Paint your walls blue is to sort of expand the sense of depth rather than let it kind of hit you right in the face. You could put up images, landscape paintings, mm. photographs of landscape, the suggestion through artwork. Again, it's what the brain is perceiving. It's not distinguishing between the real and the illusory. It just wants to respond to the in inputs that are coming in. So there are all sorts of things you can do. In fact, one of my favorite images in the book is somebody who probably took an old coat closet or something, took off the doors, renovated it, put in a built-in desk space and shelves. And I just love all the things that they did. Everything I'm talking about from the blue walls to the paintwork, to the, to the artwork, uh, elements of nature, all of these things that we can pull from other techniques to overcome the limitations of their space and turn it into a kind of creativity charged environment. So they got creative in how to make their space more creative. creative. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's the best of the best. There's several tactics in your book that kind of relate to the, the ambience of a room. First, maybe, can you tell us what, what did you learn about what is optimal lighting and noise levels for uh, creativity or insights? 
Yep, um, uh, absolutely. So let's talk about lighting. Um, through experimentation, they would, you know, put people in different uh, levels of intensity environments with different brightnesses, let's just say. So sure. from dim to bright and so forth. What they found ultimately is that there's a kind of sweet spot of um, a figure of 150 lux as being the kind of peak performance for lighting uh, or engender peak performance and creativity through lighting. So 150 lux, just to give folks a little bit of comparison, uh, 300 lux is considered like minimum for reading. If you go into your typical office space, you're probably looking at 500 to 750 lux for your general lighting. If you go into a supermarket, they tend to be brighter, so you can kind of see everything better and so forth. That's about a thousand lux. Uh, and when you step, as soon as you step outside, you're in a whole other order of magnitude, even on a cloudy day like we have here, it's mm. probably around 10,000 lux. On a bright and sunny day, we could be talking about as much as 100,000 lux. So if we're talking 150 lux, we're talking pretty darn dim. So why might that be? And by the way, while we do have this data, certainly, and we can really hang our hat on, once we ask the question, why uh, is that the case? There, there we have to enter into the realm of theory, right? We can only mm -hmm. theorize why the human mind reacts in the way it does. And, but obviously, scientists are drawing from a lot of evidence, and they can construct some pretty reasonable explanations. And very often, there's more than one uh, for any given technique as to why they have this effect. One that I talk about is when your environment is dim, you can't focus in on those details. Remember, we keep coming back to that sort of analytical versus creative mindset. You can't, you're not, you're, you're, your eyes, your mind is not external right? Because the minute you see something really bright, like think of a open watch face, and you're looking at those little tiny cogs, and it's really bright, you see every little detail, your brain is sort of going out there to the object that you're looking at. Whereas when you can't really latch onto anything, can't really make out fine detail, you tend to start looking inward, which is where creativity generally is going to happen. So you can kind of see that you okay. start to stop focusing on your environment, kind of look inward, uh, your, cre your creative ideas are going to start coming out more forcefully. Um, obviously, you know, there's only there's a limit on how well you can use this particular technique, because at some point you got to see what you're doing. If you're a writer <laughs> or whatever you're doing, you, you do have to see it. But it's very good for, like, say, bra brainstorming, early stage creativity, or um, if you hit a impasse, a log jam, just kind of dim the lights, draw the curtains if you have to. Let yourself just think and ruminate, and then you can kind of come back to a more normal lighting. That's interesting because I think I, I would have probably thought the opposite, you know, bring in all the light or let's go outside for our brainstorming session. But interesting that, you know, maybe no, maybe you need to dim the light. So sometimes, sometimes yeah. depends on your situation. I mean, you can draw from both. They both have their purposes. The outside you mentioned obviously brings that nature component Expansion. in, but you can use different techniques depending on your circumstance. Now, noise is interesting, too. Because it's another one of those where you'd kind of say, huh, I wouldn't have imagined that would be the case. Like, because if you ask most people, you know, what would you, for your sound environment, do you prefer when you're trying to, you know, get some creative work done? They say, oh, well, quiet, obviously. Isn't that, you know, ideal? Not according to the data. According to the data, 70 decibels is the sweet spot for your sound environment. So again, to give some folks some relative here, 70 decibels if you walk into your local coffee shop on a you know, kind of medium busy day and people are chatting and there's glasses clinking and espresso machines going, that's probably around 70 decibels or so in that range, which might explain why you got all those creative types hanging out in there for hours on end doing their thing on their laptops and so forth. What's the idea behind this? Well, I think when, oh, one, one caveat I should mention here is that this wants to be background noise of some kind, meaning not intelligible noise. So when you're sitting next to someone who's having a conversation with you in that coffee shop and you can hear every word, that's like the worst thing. Because <laughs> you're, you're, you just listen, you just, you, you just can't help. Yeah, but you can't get it, you can't get away. They're saying. Yeah. Whereas chit chatter and background noise, it's just kind of there and it's taking off just enough edge off that focused attention mindset as to put you, nudge you into that more creative side. And by the way, it's not just a uh, noise like that, but for example, um, sound of crickets at <laughs> night is a great example of white noise, ocean waves crashing, rain against the roof or the windows. Those are sort of very good white noise patterns generally within the 70 decibel level. Now, Another kind of caveat for folks listening with all of these techniques, these are techniques that are drawn from data with hundreds, dozens, whatever it is of subjects being put through these exercises. When it comes to you, the individual, 
You may say, no, I hate noise. I can't listen to anything. Even this pin dropping drives me crazy. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with you. <laughs> at the end of the day, these techniques may apply to you or you might find them, you know, what? they're not doing any or they could even be contradictory because we as individuals, we, we span a very wide array of personalities and past experiences that may lead us to react differently to these stimuli. But That's... it's a great place to start and you can kind of test these techniques as to what works for you and what doesn't. Yeah, absolutely. Another interesting discussion that you kind of get into in the book is this debate between whether a messy or neat environment is better for enhancing creativity. Of course, my mind immediately went to, well, it's got to be neat or I can't <laughs> I can't do anything. But that's me. What is what does science tell us about that? Yeah, no, that's that's the perfect example of what I've just been talking about. Yeah. So what scientists say um, is that, in fact, According to the data experimentation, they put people uh, into a messy environment and they were asked to solve creative problems. Then they took away the mess and then, you know, they had the same group with a, another group with the same problems. And the messy people tend to outperform the not messy environment, or I should say messy environment people. And why is this? Well, you know, again, you can kind of develop various theories. My, my pet favorites are, first of all, creativity by its nature is a messy process, right? It's not a, now I do this, now I do that, now I've discovered the polio vaccine. It should be so easy um, or it should be so linear. It's you're zigzagging all over the place. You try something and that didn't work, back two steps, try something. Okay, wait, wait a minute. And then I'm off on another tangent. So in a sense, the environment is mimicking the process itself. Uh, that said, again, because of our personalities, and I think you and I are probably similar in that, I hate messy environments. Yeah. <laughs> Everything has to be like ridiculously, you know, perfectly arrayed and or not that even things that a slight tilt on my desk drive me cuckoo. So I need to feel... <laughs> more relaxed and that is ultimately the key here is that you want to obviously avoid stress in your environment however that comes to you because stress is associated more with the analytical mindset than it is with the creative when we're stressed we tend to kind of uh, withdraw into the safe and sure methodologies that will get us out of our predicament because they mm -hmm. worked before so yes yeah, sometimes you need a creative solution to get out of your predicament but your first impulse is to go with the tried and true that's why stress tends to be non-creative inducing whereas when you feel relaxed positive comfortable in your environment in a good mood what scientists like call positive affect anything that can contribute to that tends to engender greater creativity makes makes sense when you explain it that way now it does yeah yeah that helps <laughs> one of the another great feature of your book to me is um the amazing images that you included i mean you're, you're giving a lot of practical suggestions but the images really kind of helped it come alive for me everything from the, a library in yonkers to a shed in london a treehouse in philadelphia <laughs> floating house in portland i could go on and on and on um and some things from the you know from the past like an engraving of charles dickens study in a early 19th century riding chair yeah. how how did you go about collecting the images and, and what do you think that added to the book Yes, well, thank you for, for those positive comments. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, certainly as an architect, obviously I'm very visually oriented and ultimately what we are talking about are environments that you certainly see and then sense. Um, and although I would say uh, maybe probably around 80% of our information comes to us through the sense of sight, uh, I do talk about um, other senses as well, smell, for example, sense and so forth. But visually, obviously, is where we get a lot of information about the world. So it was very important to me that this book not just be abstract in the sense of being sure. all words, but to show, as you say, practical applications to see how people have implemented the techniques, because that drives it home, I think, for all of us, uh, again, whether we're designers by profession or not, that it, all of these techniques are, I think, implementable by folks, regardless of their background. As far as, you know, pulling them together, let me tell you, it was torture. <laughs> <laughs> it was a I lot mean, of work, I bet. Oh, yeah. my. I, I would say I probably spent more time amassing the images than I did writing the book or even researching and writing the book. It's just, <laughs> it was incredible. I mean, first, and in fact, I probably 
had a had a amassed a list of probably twice as many images, or maybe even three times. I think I had somewhere around 600 potential images, of which 229, and I actually remember that number, ultimately went into the book. <laughs> if it's any consolation, it really makes the concepts come alive. So it was it was work it was uh, worth it. Work well spent. Tears. I'm curious what uh, what is. What does the creative space in your home look like? And mm. have you taken advantage of any th any of these things you've learned about? Well, if I didn't, there would be shame on me. <laughs> you can't say no to that, right? <laughs> can't say no. No, I'm very fortunate in that I have a wonderful workspace, creative space. Um, you know, I can certainly describe it to you. I mean, it's a you know rectangular space, um, but I have I live in a 1962 mid-century modern home. So I have more or less on one wall, almost from corner to corner glass, mm. and I happen to look out on a very beautiful natural landscape. I mean, there's trees, and I've nice. got a little babbling brook going by. I've got wildlife, hawks and foxes, and uh, unfortunately deer, um, and all the rest of the. Uh, it's just this amazing nature-oriented uh, setting, which of course ties into that whole science behind the connection of nature. And our creative selves. Now, the key thing there, though, is when we're in an interior space, to try to break down the barrier between inside and outside. Obviously, glass can do that, but you can go beyond that. Say, uh, in my space, I use the color green as a kind of dominant mm -hmm. color theme. So, obviously, I'm connecting inside and outside in that way. My desk happens to be this antique, uh, clear finish. I think it's mahogany or burls, kind of burled maple, maybe. Uh, beautiful wood stains. So they're again evoking natural materials, natural forms. I'm just very, you know, fortunate in that sense. Now, my ceilings are not terribly tall here. I'm in an, actually an eight foot space, but by utilizing these other techniques, I can kind of overcome those kind of limitations because our brains will generally respond to the positive inputs that we're uh, able to um, impress on ourselves. That's great. Well, we'll give you a passing grade then. You followed your own advice. So. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> One of the main reasons I, I launched this podcast is really to inspire listeners to feel more at home in their living spaces. And the ability to me, the ability to be creative would be definitely part of that. So I'm curious, what would you say makes you feel most at home? I think it's in, in kind of injecting personal memory into the space. And we talked about memorabilia. So images of family of, you know, wonderful moments in one's life, uh, things one's accomplished, what have you, the books that one reads, putting, putting your personality into your space, I think is the one of the best ways simply of making it feel like it's your own, like it's your personality. And of course, taking a lot of care being an architect that I am <laughs> and shaping the space in, in the sense of this is how I would love the world to be a beautiful, comfortable place for people to live in. That's awesome. That's a great answer. Well, Donald, thanks so much for joining us. I really enjoyed our discussion and the insights and um, experience that you shared today. I know listeners are going to get a lot out of this as well. Oh, well, thank you very much, Chip. I enjoyed it as well. And I appreciate you having me on. Thanks so much. Donald's book, My Creative Space, How to Design Your Home to Stimulate Ideas and Spark Innovation, is available through Amazon, other online outlets, and in bookstores. I highly recommend it. Trust me, it's a great read and a great resource. You can also learn more about Donald's book and work by visiting his website, donaldratner.com. That's D-O-N-A-L-D-R-A-T-T-N-E-R. Com. I'll include links in the show notes and on our podcast website, homewhereyoubelong.com. Thanks again for listening, and if you're enjoying the program, please tell your friends about us. We want to help you continue experiencing that feeling of being at home wherever you are, so please subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts and visit our website at homewhereyoubelong.com. Want to join in on discussions, ask questions, or share feedback and ideas? Join our Facebook group, visit us on Instagram, or send an email to chip at homewhereyoubelong.com. We'll see you next time. Proud member of the Podnuga Network.